What's up, everybody? You're listening to Out of the Box Podcast with your host, D-Star. Enjoy the show! What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with... Didi Morgan. Didi, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you, Dee. Thank you for asking me to be on your podcast today. This is a first for me. As you know, I don't normally do these things. So um, you have really impressed me enough to have me take this first step. I've been asked by others to be on their podcasts and I've declined, not because I didn't value them, but I just was, I think, a little scared because I've been away from the Department of Corrections now since 2018 and it's just taken me some time to recenter and balance myself. So I appreciate your patience because you asked me a while ago and I declined. And now that we've gotten to work together a little bit more, I'm feeling a little more comfortable. So I appreciate your patience. So a little bit about myself. I am a Madisonian, I feel. Now, I wasn't born here. I was actually born in Tokyo, Japan. My dad was in the Air Force and he was stationed here at Truex. And so my family moved here. We were supposed to be here temporarily. And when my dad was reassigned, my mother said, look, I have four little girls. I need to settle down and you know have some stability. So my parents remained here. I'm the fourth of those four girls. Um, and so we stayed here in Madison. I grew up here, went to East High School, and uh, then went to UW-Whitewater with a degree in social work. And then when I graduated, I was offered a limited-term employee position at Ethan Allen School for Boys. Oh, wow. So I, AKA Wales. AKA Wales. Yep. So I started my career at Wales. The interesting thing is when I was a freshman in college, I volunteered at Wales and said, this is not what I want to do for a couple of reasons. One is that I grew up in an almost all female household. The only man in our house was my father. And so then to go and volunteer at a facility that was all boys, I was really quite out of my element. And then the other reason I was not, um, interested in working at Wales is because I didn't think I wanted to work with, with this population. So um, the inmate population, right? Right. With the inmate population, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I had a, uh, my parents had a family friend who had a, a position that was, that had become open and he said I could be a limited term employee. And so I went there and I loved it literally within a matter of three days, I realized that God was taking care of me and put me at that facility. When I graduated in 1984, there were social workers everywhere. You didn't need a social work degree and there was no certification required. So when I graduated with that degree, it was very difficult to get a job. So um, I was fortunate enough to not only have someone say, look, you can come and work here, but for someone to see that I had an affinity to that kind of work. And so I, I was with the Department of Corrections for 18 years. I did leave the agency three times, but I came back every single time. <laughs> so what about Wales led you to want to be in corrections? Well, the first thing is I started there on my 23rd birthday and young men could be there until up to their 19th birthday. So I wasn't that much older than they were. And I don't really, I'm not sure I remember how to navigate that other than that there were a lot of staff there who were very supportive but I just found the process to be very challenging, very interesting, very different than anything I had experienced. I would frequently read one of the young men's file and just wonder how they are still functioning and still able to, you know, smile and say, good morning, Miss Morgan, or how are you, Miss Morgan? Um, there was a lot of trauma there. There's a lot of hurt there. They inflicted a lot of hurt, but they, many, many of those young boys and men had been significantly harmed as well. 
So you stayed at Wells for how long? One year. And then you moved on to? To work in the uh, juvenile aftercare program here in Madison. So I worked with youth coming out of Lincoln Hills and Wales that were wow. that were in the Dane County, um, Rock County, I had Iowa County. I had a couple of counties so, that I worked with. I had somewhere around 17 jobs. So I'll, I'll do my resume. I'll, I'll, pr- I'll try to make it brief. So I started at Wales. I was there for a year. And then I became a juvenile aftercare agent working with kids coming out of Ethan Allen and Lincoln Hills. I was there for about a year. And then I was offered a position on the juvenile parole board. And all of these jobs were limited term employee positions. None of them were permanent positions. So I went to be on the juvenile parole board, and then I was offered a permanent position. Now, mind you, in the meantime, I am desperately trying to get a permanent job with the state. And I'm taking those state exams, and I'm not scoring very well. So persistence is one of the things that that I've learned, because I don't test well. So I wouldn't even be able to score high enough to to interview, let alone, you know, have an interview. So then um, I was actually uh, asked to leave the juvenile parole board and become work for the department's equal opportunity employment office, the affirmative action office. And I remember seeing the affirmative action director. It was at Crazy TV Lenny one, one Saturday. And she said, you know, we're looking for an equal employment opportunity specialist. Would you be interested? And I looked at her and said, you know, I don't know a whole lot about civil rights other than my experience as a black woman. And she said, yeah, I, she said, I can teach you the law. She said, what I can't teach you is how to write a report, how to interview an individual, how to turn an interview into an interrogation, how to testify in court. So she really, at that moment, in that 15 minute conversation, taught me about skills versus knowledge. And I took that with me for the rest of my career. So I became the department's equal employment opportunity specialist for four years. And then my boss left the department, and she went to Department of Transportation, and I interviewed for the position, and he did not get it. And I was pretty salty. I was actually, I was quite, quite frankly, I was angry because I was in an acting, the acting position at that point. And um, when somebody else got the job, then I ended up having to train that individual, and that just wasn't very comfortable for me. And I clearly remember that that saltiness that comes with being the fourth kid of four kids of all girls. I got some mad skills. I have the kind of skills that can make your life miserable. And in doing that, I could also ruin my reputation. So what I did was I decided rather than ruin my reputation, it was better if I leave the organization. So I left the Department of Corrections, went to Department of Transportation for 10 months. It was my first supervisory position. Didn't understand it. It wasn't like when I started with the Department of Corrections that I understood the statutes, that I understood the, you know, what we were doing. It just wasn't interesting to me. So then I interviewed for the uh, human resources director for the Wisconsin Correctional Center System. And the warden at the time, I went to do a second interview and he took me to lunch and he said, you know, I'm a little worried about hiring you. You're the affirmative action lady. So what I did when I was in the affirmative action office is I went around and did investigated discrimination and harassment complaints. And he said, how do you get over that hurdle of people saying, D.D. Morgan's here. Somebody's in trouble. And I told him that, you know, my job as an investigator was not to prove what people said happened, but to go in and find out what happened. And that requires a certain level of credibility and that I have that. And he actually hired me and I stayed there for four years. And then I realized that I wanted to try something different. And there was a human resources director position at Stoughton Schools. 
So I went there for two years. And after two years. Shout out to Stoke. Yep. Shout out to Stoke. <laughs> it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, community. Uh, we didn't move there, but I have, I still have some really good friends that, that live in Stoughton. But then um, a position opened up in the parole commission or the parole board. And so I became. For adult? A, for adult. Yep. Okay. So I did juvenile and now I'm doing a, a, adult. And so I, I became a member of the parole commission because they're not a board. It's commissioners. They're individuals. And I was there for several months, and then um, the chair of the parole commission left, and the governor needed a new chair, and the then secretary of the department um, recommended that I become the chair of the parole commission under Governor McCallum. And so I was the chair of the parole commission, and then there was a change in uh, the governor's position, and um, Governor McCallum left, and Governor Doyle came in, and at that point I became the executive assistant, which is now the assistant deputy secretary, which is the number three for the Department of Corrections. Right. And this is another job where great position, really exciting, but it didn't work for me. I didn't understand it. I didn't have a feel for it. I didn't feel comfortable in it. And so... Do you feel like it was too political? I'm not sure it was the politics. I'm more of a kind of get in there, see what's going on, figure it out, execute some changes, move move things around. I'm not sure it was the politics because there's a lot of politics in every position that I've had, but it, I just didn't, I don't know. I just didn't jive for me. And I, and I think part of it was that I didn't really have a lot of decision-making authority and I'm a person who likes to make decisions as you've told me <laughs> recently. <laughs> so then I left that position and literally for a very short period of time, I went back into the department and then I was approached by then Attorney General Peg Lautenschlager, and she asked me to become her director of communications and public policy over at DOJ. And I thought, yeah, this this will be kind of fun. So I went over and did that job. And just as I went over there, I wasn't there for more than a few months. The warden position opened up at Oak Hill Correctional Institution. And at the time, I was living in Verona, which is only a few miles from there. And um, I then I contacted the Department of Corrections. I wrote a letter and said, you know, I'd be interested in coming back. And so at that point, I became the warden at Oak Hill. I was there for eight years. Um, and after I was at Oak Hill, it's starting to become a blur. Oh, yes. Then I was uh, went back to juvenile as a, one of the, the regional chiefs for a very short period of time. And then Ed Wall became the secretary of the Department of Corrections, and he appointed me. So Ed Wall became secretary, and I became deputy secretary. That other job I held was assistant deputy secretary, which was number three. Now I became number two. And Ed was? Number one. Number one. (laughs) (laughs) He was number one, and he'll remind us of that. So Ed uh, made me his deputy. And this is one of the, when I talk to people and they talk to me about my career, the two things, you know, that they say, you know, how did you get where you are? One is that moment where the woman who was that crazy TV Lenny taught me the difference between skills and knowledge. And the other one was when I met Ed Wall, I had met him several years, a couple of years before when I was, uh, working as the warden at Oak Hill. I had met him at DOGA a couple of times, but never spent any time with him. And I remember I, I, I hadn't been the warden very long, and I had um, come into the office, and there was this man in a truck with a trailer, and he was there to pick up wood. And my phone rang, and it was my friend, and she said, uh, yeah, the division administrator for DCI is in your parking lot. He's come to pick up wood. Um, can you just make sure he's taken care of? You've met him before. So I pulled up to his car, his truck, 
and we had him drive his truck down. And then I gave him a tour of the institution. And I think to this day, and I, the Ed will say this, but I will also say this, that was a job interview. I had no idea that was a job interview. And I don't think Ed knew that either because who knew that he was going to be offered the secretary position. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things I tell my kids and I tell other people who are you know, asking me about my career that every time I'm in contact with somebody, that's a job interview. And you never know who that person who that person is. And at the same time, when people are communicating with me, that's a job interview. <laughs> it's just as easy as that. Um, and so I gave Ed a, a tour of the facility, and that's how I became the deputy deputy secretary. And then, you know, the rest is history. There's, you know, Ed was, um, Ed and I were, you know, we left our Ed position. Ed, and Robin. <laughs> yeah, we really were. Um, we left our positions, and I went back into the um, Department of Corrections as the assistant administrator of Division of Management Services, which is personnel, budget, IT. It's the infrastructure, procurement. Um, of the organization. And I was there for almost two years. And then I was uh, approached by the State Department and was asked to apply for a position. Actually, it was not a, I was a, approached by a private contractor who had a, had a, was going to have a contract with the State Department in Saudi Arabia to work with a team of women to work with the women's prison. And that thing had been going on for a couple, three years. And then I got a call saying that a position that the subject matter expert to corrections advisor position in Tunisia, which is the most northern tip of Africa, had opened up, and they asked me to apply for it. And I applied for that position, and in 2018, I retired from the Department of Corrections after 33 years, went to Africa for two years, and then, um, you know, worked with the Tunisian government on their, their prison reform. It was probably one of the most exciting experiences of my life. I was scared a lot, um, not because it's, it's scary over there, but I, you know, I left my family behind, my husband, my kids. Um, I went to a foreign country, but I tell you, they really took care of me. I, it was a one-year contract renewable for four year, up to four years, and that first year went by so fast. And then the second year went by really fast, and I came home in 2019 um, in December and uh, my dad unexpectedly died at Christmas mm. while I was home. Fortunately, I was home, and I realized that I really was missing too much, and so I decided to, to come home, and then COVID hit. Literally, I was home for two weeks, and then the the world shut down after two weeks. So do you feel like if COVID didn't hit, you would have went back to Tunisia? No. I had already made the decision. I was actually already home because my lease was up there, and um no, I was I was coming home. I felt like I had just missed too much with my dad passing, and it was unexpected. It really brought me and my sisters and my mom, you know, closer. It just made me realize that I was missing a lot, and I was missing my husband, and I was missing my children, some really important moments in their lives. And um, so I came home, COVID hit. I settled in for about two and a half years, just kind of getting my house together and selling it and moving and helping my mom and my sisters and really enjoying life. And then I got a phone call asking me to uh, go to Saudi Arabia for th- about three and a half months to train in the women's prison. And so I, I agreed to do that. And while I was there, I had an epiphany, which was, one, I don't want to be away from my family anymore. And two, I think I want to go back to work. And so I did my three and a half months in Saudi and um, really enjoyed myself, but also felt like I was done doing the international travel. Uh, just because, again, I missed my family too much. So I came home and at Wall again, approached me and said, you know, you should apply for the HR director at, you know, United Way. And I said, yeah, I'm, 
okay. So, you know, there was back and forth and I applied and now I'm here and that's how I met you. I'm the HR director for United Way. What are some of the obstacles you have overcome being a female warden? Yeah, I think I'm going to add another word in there. It's being a, a black female warden that um, really adds a whole nother, a whole nother layer. Um, it's, you know, corrections is very, very complicated and very, very complex. And some of the obstacles that I didn't realize were going to happen, there's some really obvious ones, but some of the obstacles were, you know, going to other states and having people say, there are black people in Wisconsin. And so, you know, you have to deal with that. And then uh, the assumption that I was a warden at a female prison and that only women can be wardens at female prisons. Um, those are some of the obstacles. But also there were many times that I would not only as a warden, but in other positions, people would say things like she got that because she slept with somebody. She got that because she's black. She got that because she's a woman. You took my job. So these are all the not voice. knowing your extensive resume. Right. And exactly. You, by that time you had been in the DLC for what, 13, 14 years yeah. before. You know, before you got that position. But, you know, also she got that position because she knows somebody. And sometimes that was that's true. Somebody would, you know, say, I think you should apply for that job. Well, I knew that somebody who said you should apply, you should apply for that job. Um, I've never gotten a job without an application process. I've never been appointed to a position. Even when the governor appointed me the chair of the parole board, I still had to meet with the governor and have a conversation and explain my philosophy, my background, you know, how I was going, how I was appropriate for that position. So, you know, the, those are some of the obstacles that, that I, that I knew were there, but I didn't realize how deep seated they, they were. Or, you know, when I was at Oak Hill and we were part of UW hospitals and clinics and we had a, we have a secure unit up there and meeting with doctors and having them say, you know, you just are too nice to be a warden. I can't believe you're a warden. And that stuff would just bubble out of people's mouths. And it's, it, um, I just was, I was shocked at the, at the level of just kind of people's willingness to say just about anything that they felt. What are some of the programs that you've implemented at Oak Hill? There are so many best practices in corrections. And one of them is work release and having people in our care work in the community, make a market wage, have, you know, set aside money to pay for, you know, their first apartment and, you know, a couple months rent, buy a car, pay their restitution, pay their child support. And when I got to Oak Hill, we did not have work release where people in our care were going into the community and making market wages. So I wouldn't say that I necessarily invented or I may have implemented that, but I don't want to take credit that that was a brainchild that I thought was, you know, fantastic that, you know, nobody else was doing that. I just took something that that other parts of the Department of Corrections were doing. And there's a reason Oak Hill was not doing work release. It's because it, it was a fenced facility. So even though it was minimum, it was fenced. So we were taking some, some. So a secure minimum. So it was a secure minimum, right. So we were taking some, you know, and right next door to it is Oregon. So I'm competing with Oregon for jobs out in the community. And that, you know, I'm also competing with Thompson Correctional Center for jobs. So um, it's it's really complicated and difficult um, process to explain to people because you were actually taking jobs from people who are in the community who have to support their families. Whereas people in our care, they're supported by us in terms of food and clothing and a, and a place to rest. So there was a lot of education that, that had to occur. The other thing is, um, and these are, these are little things that I did. Um, 
We were a minimum security facility. And when people in our care graduated from high school, the graduation took place back in the school, way inside the institution. And so family members couldn't come. So, you know, we moved that to the front of the facility so that family members could be part of that incredible moment to be able to see your loved one walk across the stage and, and get their diploma. And so again, not something that I invented, but it is something that I, that I implemented. And thank you for that. Cause a lot of people have taken what you've implemented and really changed their lives. It actually gave them a good start to reentry. So what do you feel that the DOC is doing right, right now? You just said it, reentry. It is the tried and true best practice to help you know, people returning to the community to, to have an opportunity for success. Um, so the tools are there and the resources are there. If we start looking at reentry from the moment they walk in the door, you know, back in the eighties, when I started, we didn't even start thinking about return to the community until they were, you know, a year or six months from release, but now the Department of Corrections is really looking at reentry from the moment a person walks in, even if they've got a life sentence, even if they've got twenty or thirty years, because reentry is is not just about when you return. But what are your plans while you're with us? What do you want to accomplish while you're with us? Because the department can't change who comes in the door; they don't even have the authority to, re- to release people. And so that's the complexity of, of what the department does is how do you want to live your life within this particular moment in time? And let's see if we can help you do that and get there. And that's, that can be very complicated because we're working with people who don't want to be there. We're working with people who many times don't feel they should be there. We're working with people who um, have had a really difficult time getting to that to that spot. So it's, it's a mindset of what are you going to do with your time while you, while you're here? Can you give us an example of your favorite success story? You know, people ask me this and I really struggle because I, the successes of the people that I've been in contact with are just so many and they're their successes. I think every single one of them is, is a success. And I, there's so many, I, I mean, I really can't think of anything that that stand out because is it the father that gets reunited with his children who he hasn't seen for years and he gets out on work release and he's actually starting to pay child support and that's before he even leaves the facility or is it the mother who's paying child support while she's incarcerated? Um, is it the person who gets their HCD? Is it the person who gets their, in some regards online, you know, an associate's degree. Um, I don't even, they may even be doing some college work now. I've been gone for so long. I've been gone since 2018. So there are just so many successes that it's hard to, to highlight one. If you could say one thing to the people in the DLC to encourage them to succeed, what would it be? Very simple. Do the right thing and do the right thing without expecting any recognition, any reward, anything in return. And then you will never be disappointed. It's when someone does the right thing and says, okay, I did the right thing. Now I want fill in the blank. And there's going to be disappointment with that. Um, So just knowing what the right thing is in no culture that I know of, and mind you, I am not a historian, but in no culture, is it okay to violate someone's rights and, and for the society to be okay with that? I mean, stealing is stealing in any culture Raping is raping in any culture. Um, 
you know, the, those kinds of behaviors are wrong in any culture. And if you know that to be wrong and know that it's not the right thing, just do the right thing and people will have success. And I know it's more complicated than that, but at the root of everything is do the right thing. I get it's more complicated, but it has to start somewhere. If you could go back and change one thing from your time in the DLC, what would it be and why? I would change nothing. Um, Well, one thing. I would have set more money aside (laughs) in my retirement. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I had some really hard lessons and painful times in DOC. And that's when I did my most growing. And I'm not sure that I would have had those hard lessons because DOC can be a very, very difficult place to work. And it's also a very rewarding place to work. But really, I wouldn't change anything. Even though some of those positions that I thought I wanted, and didn't get, I wouldn't change it because I wouldn't be where I am um, right now. It has shaped who I am to this day. And and for my family, I, I believe that it also shaped who they are. I have very independent, strong children who um, had a very independent, strong mother that, you know, we all sat at the table as a family, them doing their homework, their dad doing his work, me doing my work, and that, you know, that was family time. Um, so I, I, wouldn't change, I wouldn't change anything. So the people that's currently in the DLC's care, if you can give them from your experience, what would be the best way to stay out of trouble with inside of the With inside, yeah. Because um, I know you've seen a million scenarios and a million different situations of things going left. Mm-hmm. It could have been avoided if X, Y, and Z. Yeah, follow the rules. Do your time. Um, I remember I my college roommate and her husband came to tour my facility. And when they got done, they looked at me and said, it's like you're the mayor of a small city. And I didn't realize that. And realize that even though you're incarcerated and you don't want to be there and you don't like to be there, it's where you are. And so follow the rules, pay attention, get what you can. If that means an HSED, get a job, help others. Um, we have so many People who have been incarcerated for quite a while who really are there and they're helping some of our younger people make the adjustment. And I think that's that is just so commendable that you know many of our lifers or our long-term guys have realized I'm you know, I can help make the situation for somebody coming in who's young and who's got a lot of energy and who thinks they're gonna fight the system. You know, we rely on those guys to help those young men grow and become become young men. And that's that's very difficult. And we need more people who who are willing to give of themselves in a way that's without any reward to helping the young men that are coming in who who have made some really difficult decisions and done some harm to find the forgiveness and be on the other side on the side of that. Absolutely. Well, Didi, you've given us a lot to think about and you've given us a lot of information and a, a lot of good words of wisdom. So I really appreciate your time. I'm D star until next time, guys. Thank you for listening to out of the box podcast an inspiring show advocating for our current and former inmates and their families in Wisconsin. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? Click our affiliate link or Buzzsprout for all your podcast hosting needs. You can also support the show by clicking our support link in the description.